Do you want to hear about great work happening in schools around the world? Just Schools are life-giving places that address feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student. Dr. John Eckert digs deep into the current educational landscape with research, experience, and a good dose of humor and humility. Join us in the desire to do justice, love kindness, and walk with confident humility. Get inspired with stories of improvement in the profession that makes all others possible. Welcome back to Just Schools. Today, I'm excited for you to hear from Anika Prather. She is the Director of High Quality Curriculum and Instruction at Johns Hopkins University, and she's also a founder of a classical Christian school for kids that sometimes get forgotten in the classical school world. So she's particularly interested in serving students of color. And so she has so many interesting things here. I think you will take away the fact that she felt called to the work that she's been because she said, if you're not called, you're either prideful or crazy. So the title of this episode, Crazy conceded or called comes from what she's felt like she's been called to do and the amazing work that she's doing with students to engage them deeply in ways that build cognitive endurance, but also deepen their engagement in the world and in the work that they're doing. Really glad to have Anika Prather with us today. She is a phenomenal educator who's been doing work in some really interesting fields. And so I'm going to let her do a little introduction of where she's at now and how she got into this work uh, and what she's passionate about, particularly as it relates to engaging students and students of color in particular. So Anika, thanks for being with us. Just tell us a little bit about where you're at now and what brought you to the place you're at at this point. Well, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Um, I graduated from Howard University with a, bachelor, with a bachelor's in elementary education. I worked in Montgomery County Public Schools uh, for about six years. And then um, at the end of those six years, my pa- my own mom and dad decided to start a classical uh, Christian school. So I, after much begging and pleading, <laughs> decided to... Uh, leave to help leave public schools to help them. But I did it kind of kicking and screaming because I did not feel classical education was relevant to black students, but I love my parents as many people may realize. Um, And so I decided I would support them. They've always supported me. And I came on as the performing arts teacher. And then with a short, within a short time of being there, um, because my work before classical education in my first, my previous life, my interest was in showing um, how to use uh, music and drama in the classroom or performing arts in the classroom. And so my background was how to use the arts to help students connect to difficult literature. That was my real uh, pinhead focus. And um, so I would use the arts in my parents' school to connect with whatever was going on in the classroom. And so I happened to come across a class that was reading. I cannot remember the text from great books they were reading, but they were reading. It was a great books class. And the parents, the, the, I mean, the students were not engaged. And the teacher even felt that the school should not be using this type of literature for these black students because it was it, it to her appeared culturally irrelevant to them. And. On the one hand, in my mind, I agreed with her because I had been saying the same thing to my parents, but only I'm allowed to disagree with my parents. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. 
And so I said, well, let me see if I can help you. So I took, I said, what books are you reading? What are your lessons going to be? And I'll create some performing arts lessons to help them engage with the literature. And as soon as I began to read the literature for myself, I realized almost immediately that what I thought about these texts was wrong. And I actually came face to face with how I had just been buying in to what was being said about the text, even though I hadn't myself read them for myself. And so as I read them, I saw that, you know, they weren't talking about racism or uh, white supremacy or oppressing black people. They were just telling about the human condition. And I was immediately able to connect because the story was that universal or the text felt that universal. And um, after a while, I fell in love with it. I, the teacher and I worked really well. And we're still very good friends. And she had moved up to high school to teach that class because she was a person who loved to read. She just struggled with getting connected to that literature. And so she said, you know, I think I'm going to go back to elementary and let you have the great books class. So I went on to just continue to teach the great books class in my parents' school for about another six years until the school closed down. And when the school closed down, it was very devastating for me because I had begun to see how this type of learning, lat learning Latin, learning logic, uh, creating a thesis and presenting it at the end of a school year, reading from the canon, connecting the canon, because my parents were are definitely very much about Black history but connecting the study of the canon with the Black experience. Like that was what the school did. And so when that school closed down after 10 years of struggle, I mean, my parents started out, the school started out being connected to the church my father founded when I was a little girl. And it began to really just drain the finances of the church that the board decided it's going to have to stand on its own. It stood on its own for a little while. And then it began to drain my parents' bank account. And for long you know, with a lot of sadness, my dad decided to close the school. And I remember that day he told me, I'm going to close the school. There's nothing you can do to make me change my mind because that's where I was. By that time, I had evolved to being resistant to an advocate. Um, I just was sad. And I realized that this, this tradition is so controversial. And my mom and dad had figured out a way to take something so meaningful, so uh, uh, important to all of us and make it relevant to my community. And I did not, I could not see where another school was, was truly teaching classically, not a hybrid version or anything like that. It was, it, they were pretty strict with sticking with uh, the traditional approach to classical education, but they brought in they brought it in conversation with the black experience. And I remember I was newly married and I realized my kids would not have that. Mm. So I thought that um, I wasn't, I hadn't had any kids yet, but I was, we were planning it. And I realized that with the closing of that school, my, my children wouldn't have that. So I, but I let it go. I thought God had um, ended that. I went on to be a principal of another classical school, had a very different, it was classical, but had a very, very different perspective on bringing it to the black community. And, um, and then long story short, um, I had children, my, my oldest son started kindergarten and this memory of that school came back to me again. Oh my goodness. My son is starting kindergarten and I was visiting schools and none of them would give them what I already knew. You know, once you find truth, 
it's really hard to accept anything less than that. Mm. And so I came home and I said, honey, there is no school that I feel meets with what, what my parents' school had. And I want that for my children. And so I began to pray. I remember it was like a week period. And I began to pray. Lord, what should I do about the school? Should I homeschool him? And we both felt that my son's personality needed consistent daily interaction with other people. So we felt that being in a school, even if it was small, would be best for him as opposed to just being homeschooled. And uh, the first day I prayed and I heard this voice inside my heart just say, start a school. And it just, I just kept hearing this whisper, start a school. And I just kept saying no. And I said, like, if anyone's listening to me right now, watch out for the person who says, I've always dreamed of starting a school. They have, they're, they're either insane. <laughs> <laughs> they are either insane or extremely prideful. Mm. That starting and running a school is, is a very challenging, uh, humbling experience. And so for days I kept, I kept hearing the start of school, start of school. And finally, on the last day of that week, I said, I'm going to, just in case it's God and it's not in my head, I'm going to say, yes, I will start a school, but I'm going to let you know, number one, I believe it's impossible. Number two, I don't want to do it. And number three, if it's really you, God, you have to do it all by yourself. I'm, I'm, I'm making myself available, but I don't know. I have no money. I have no, I have no way of knowing what to do. And so that was uh, in the early part of 2015, probably January when I accepted it. And so I just went on and I registered the school, went through, did all the legal paperwork so it could be a legal entity. Still all the time saying this is going to, I'm not going to have any students. And my husband made this idea. He's, he has his MBA. So he's always thinking financially. And he says, if you could get 12 students. Now, mind you, I'm not thinking full-fledged school. I'm thinking one-room schoolhouse, me, my little kindergartner, and a, up to second grade. I was going to take K through second and do it like a little one-room schoolhouse with 12 children. And my husband said, if you can get 12 students, you have enough to pay your rent. We had found uh, the church was going to allow us to rent a room and it was already zoned to have a school so we could do that easily. If you could get 12 students, you have enough to pay your rent and your salary and you should be fine. So I advertise on social media. And I get 30 students. Wow. wow. With just 30 days left in the summer and I had to scramble and find teachers. <laughs> and these students range in age from kindergarten through 10th grade. Oh, wow. Wow. Okay. Big <laughs> jump from K through two to K through 10. <laughs> I had to keep going back to the Department of Education, changing my licensing all the way up. And finally, I just said, well, just give me all of it, K through 12. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was almost nine years ago. We're finishing our eighth year of the Living Water School now. And um, it's been an amazing experience. And um, we were a regular brick and mortar school to deal with the virus. We went online and and opened up another niche because there are other families, maybe not all in Maryland, they're all over the world um, that want a, a classical education that is truly classical, but is in conversation with diverse voices mm. and is very sensitive and intentional about that. 
And so we we have students in Texas, we have students in Florida, New York, um, and it's it's becoming not it, it's predominantly black, but it's slowly changing. That's changing. We're getting students of other ethnic backgrounds, and they're all going to get this classical education. And that that's how I got here. I know that was a long version. <laughs> No, that's so great. And and you're now also connected with Johns Hopkins. Tell yes. us a little bit about how you overlap with Johns Hopkins with your work yes. of starting a school, being yes. either insane or prideful or just <laughs> obedient to uh, obedient to a call. Uh, Obe- that's right. That was the third choice. I was supposed to say that's obedient it. to a call. That, that's it. I was like, I can't put you in uh, prideful or crazy. So, all right. Yeah. Well, some people think I'm crazy, but that's another story. <laughs> but um, yeah, so uh, we, and also I'm going to say we finished our, our credit, our school, the school is a accredited now with middle state so i'm really excited we just got our earned our accreditation um this week and got the official letter and so um in the midst of all of that i started a position um i was teaching um classes at, uh, in the classics department at howard university but i eventually was offered a position to be the director of high quality curriculum and instruction at the johns hopkins institute for education policy founded by dr david steiner and ashley dr Ashley Burner, and I've been there now for almost a year since July last year, and it's there that I get to do consultation, teacher training. We um, analyze and assess curricula, school culture, just every nook and cranny of school, and as a way to make school better for all children. And so I've been my part of the institute is I'm really focused on more curated projects. Their designs unique to the particular school. Um, and I just kind of find out what the school needs from me. And it may be, can you assess this curriculum that we've been using? Do you think it really meets the needs of our diverse students? Or can you rewrite a whole unit on this topic and, and we'll use it as a model unit? Um, and then I also support the knowledge map at the Institute where we do an even broader review of curricula um, looking for content-rich curricula as well as um, equitable curricula for students. And so, yeah, and I love that work so much. Well, it's amazing. I just love the title that you have, the director, not of curriculum and instruction, but high-quality curriculum <laughs> instruction. I always wonder, we have yes. lots of departments of curriculum and instruction across yes. the country, but it is definitively a fact. Not all of it is high quality. So yes, let's, absolutely. Let's, focus, let's focus on the high quality, yes. uh, which le- leads me into this next question, because the book that undergirds the podcast is just teaching with yeah. the idea being that if you have feedback, engagement, and well-being for each student, that's teaching yes. for justice and flourishing. And so yes. the, the classical curriculum <laughs> is sometimes overlooked as a way to deeply engage students. And mm-hmm. so what I heard you say uh, when you originally were opposed to classical education is you hadn't read the material. You didn't even know what you were critiquing. And this feels yes, to me oh. like a symptomatic problem in society right now. Yes. Where we're talking past each other all the time because we haven't taken the time to actually deeply engage yes. the ideas. And so that's what classical education or built around truth, beauty, and knowledge is designed yes. for. So, Tell me a little bit about how you've seen that in students when they do that deep dive into deeply engaging classic literature, applying it to different traditions, whether it's just the black tradition or other traditions, how that's built 
richer conversations and built community. How have you seen that play out either in your parents' school or in the school that you've started um, since 2015? I'm going to give you a couple of examples and, um, and they're all very different. At my school, I had a student who was probably sixth grade and he came to me almost, he was maybe functionally, he was very, very poor reading at sixth grade. He was probably reading like a second grade level. And he was the class clown. He was a very nice kid. So he wasn't a behavioral problem in that sense, but he was always just joking and laughing. Couldn't get him to sit still and learn. And then the other piece about it is if anyone looked at him wrong or said anything offensive, he'd get really angry and um, lash out. And, but he was generally a a good natured kid. That was him almost nine years ago, just before the pandemic. um, He came to me and he said, have you noticed something? I said, Oh, what? Well, I'm doing my work and I'm, I'm writing well. I'm reading. I said, yeah, I see that. He said, I don't get angry anymore. And I said, and, and what we learned from that conversation is as a result of engaging in Socratic dialogue about literature. I mean, this totally shocked me. As a result of him engaging in this Socratic dialogue where people will disagree with you, people will have different perspectives and you have to follow these rules for civil discourse. He learned some skills on how to navigate life. That's the first Mm -hmm. thing. He realized that through conversation and listening and engaging with people who may see things differently, he's not threatened by that, that he knows how to engage in that way. And the other piece is his literacy began to improve. Now this, we, this, um, and I've found this to be true with, with classical education. And I'm not saying there's anything wrong with having remedial classes and pullouts where you're working with students and drilling them on phonics and reading and writing and things like that. So they can carry up and get on point with where everyone is. Um, I am not against that. So anyone who's listening to me, this is not a a criticism. But my school takes a much slower approach where I just believe if you just implement good, solid classical education that starts off with the grammar of education, the building blocks, learning, you know, how phonics, learning how to spell, learning your math facts, learning how uh, uh, to put together a sentence, the parts of speech, those building blocks, and just going each year and just teaching that faithfully, consistently and and engaging students in reading and discussion and writing consistently. Like at my school, you have to turn in an essay every single Thursday and every month you have to read a book and turn in a book report. And so we're consistent with that. And what happens is even if I start a child with a book that may not be right on their level, This process that classical has where you're engaging the mind and shaping it to think critically, all the while mixing in the very uh, uh, the, the building blocks of learning, you will begin to see this slow, steady process of learning. And so in addition to him learning life skills, academically, he became much stronger than he was before. So those are two things um, out of one student's life. Um, And I've seen it. I've seen students come in. They can't just put together a sentence or they can't spell. They're not able to read. They can decode. But they can't read something and tell you what it means or develop questions that they want to discuss. 
that without constantly saying, hey, let me get this done. We got to have a pullout and put them in this room. But just constantly being in the practice of this type of literacy, you begin to slowly and steadily and eventually very quickly see these skills form in students um, that, yeah. I want to ask you a question about that because what I hear you talking about is them developing cognitive endurance to be able to stick with something. And sometimes when we do the pullouts and we try to atomize everything, we make it smaller and smaller and smaller, which we certainly need to do. And there's good research out there on the science of reading, what that looks like. Yeah, and I agree. Yep. If we don't give students a chance to stick with the text and struggle with it, and engage with it and, and engage in Socratic seminar, talk about it, talk oh, about yeah. the way they're making sense of it. it. It's very difficult to develop that cognitive endurance. Yeah. So if you were to say, Hey, here are one or two keys that you've seen to developing that cognitive endurance, which seems to be diminishing throughout society. Yeah. Um, what, what are, what are a couple keys that you've seen in your school where that's really played off in your high quality curriculum and instruction? Two keys. Um, I hope this makes sense. It's going to sound very simple. No, it's all simple is good. That if you are consistent with that process, they will grow academically. Mm, okay. Um, this is not a doubt. And, and, and the thing about it is, it's really interesting is it's even children who have learning challenges, even children whose families aren't um, literary or educated, if every day they come to school and you are working through those same processes of building that cognitive strength, they will grow and change. And, and we have to learn to be patient with that process. And I know, I know that I'm speaking from a private school and someone could be listening to me and say, Oh, if you only knew the pressure I'm under. Um, and I've worked in schools like that. So there were, there were two ways I would handle it. On the one, I may be following that pace that the principal or the school or the school board is telling me. But there are other things, I, just as a teacher, that I may be doing with the child after school, at recess, as a pull aside, that we are constantly working through that while still, you know. And I'm saying that just as an example of how much I believe in this process. And I remember trying this out when I was working at a Christian school that was very much test driven and very much. Um, and, and I'm, again, this is not a critique of uh, ACSI school because I know they are really valuable to what we do, but we, to be an ASSI, ACSI, you have very certain standards you have to follow. And I remember entering in my standards and how we met them. And I did that and I followed the rules there. But then what I would do is I asked her mom, and I know, you know, this is off the clock, but I'd ask her, can I work with her a little bit after school or during um, lunchtime or, I mean, a recess time once a week, I would just, and I would just do the same thing. And this little girl was not an English speaker. She was from, I believe she was from China and she did not speak English. She was new in the school, new in the, in the country. And she struggled with phonics. She struggled with learning, but she, over that one year that I had her, to this day, her mother follows me on Facebook. Her mother will say, what you did for my daughter, I mean, that was the building blocks. I, I could never be more grateful. I don't say that as a, a bragging point. I'm saying as a living example of how the strategy works and how you can kind of slip it in to whatever structure you're in. So that's one, the consistency. You will see change. I'm sorry, that was a long answer for one. No, it's good. one. It's good. The second thing is that 
it's a question that I have an answer for. Is learning happening when the only focus is the test or filling in the blanks? And I know those things are now I'm not one of those radicals who feels like those things aren't necessary. That's not what I'm saying. But it can't be the only thing, you know, and the reason I say I feel strongly about that, because even with what I believe, we will do some testing. We will do some things to prepare because life is going to have moments where you have to take a test, where you have to fill in the blank. When you go to college, you got to memorize that material and, you know, freshman biology and be able to, you know, name the bio, you know, the, you know, different things on the biology uh, study sheet they give you as a, as a freshman. You're going to have places where you're going to have to fill in the blank, do a test and show that you have that, you know, that, that memory. But when it comes to creating strong, critical thinkers, you've got to have time and space within a school day or week or month or quarter where there is that slow process of cultivating critical thinking. And so filling in the blank, doing the score, high score on the test is not enough. Those are the two things that I would say. Yeah, so, so true. The consistency piece does a lot because it communicates confidence that the kid can yeah. get there. Uh, and it, you don't have to give them a rah-rah speech. It's just, right. we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep going. And it's not about the test. Right. It's about us learning and becoming whole human beings. And yes. so I had to laugh when you were doing that. I wrote standardized assessments for years in science for like seven different states for a publishing company because they paid me 25 to $40 per question. So right. it was good pay for a, yes. uh, for a teacher, but we had to write them sometimes at levels on Bloom's taxonomy at the, you know, synthesis level of Bloom's yes. taxonomy. Like you really can't do that on a multiple choice test. It's nope. a lot easier to do that in a Socratic seminar. Yes. And so that's where the focus needs to be. All right. So this is our yes. light, lightning round. I'm really going to test you here, Anika. Uh-oh, I'm scared. Can you, can you answer these questions in a phrase or a sentence only? We'll see if you can pull it off. So here we go. Best advice you've ever received as an educator. You've got to write lesson plans. Okay. All right. And can, can I explain that? Or is it just like yes, you, can, you can explain it. Yeah, that's fine. Okay. When I first started, I'm a creative. When I first started teaching yeah. many years ago, back in 1995, I didn't understand the importance of that. The first year I learned that you've got to write up, get that lesson yeah. plan book. Yeah. And even if it's shorthand, because you will, you will meander and wander. You won't, it'll be hard to get your kids well, where you want them to go. And it gives you something to go back to the next year. So you can see what, what did I do yes. when last year? Yeah, no. Yes. Well, good advice. All right. What's the worst advice you've ever received as an educator? <laughs> this, is, this is the advice that made me leave the public school system. Okay. Here we go. No offense to public schools, please. Uh, yes. I was having a student who was falling through the cracks and she was the only student. It was a predominantly white public school and I, she was the only black student in my school and only one in the grade level. And there was like five different grade levels. And I went to the teacher's lounge, um, which I, that was advice that I was given. I should never do, but I went to the teacher's lounge and I said, what am I going to do about this precious little girl? She's falling through the cracks. And a teacher who I guess she meant well said to me, well, I mean, you have about 30 kids in your class. We all know that somebody's going to fall through the cracks. You just got to let it go. Mm. 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 That's crushing. That's great. I spent that, 12, 12 years in public schools and that, that, uh, that's a gut punch. That's a gut punch. And yeah. it was a really, and this public school was actually, it was a pretty 
good public school system. And I believe she was a good teacher and she was being, she was trying to help me be a realist. Uh, yeah. I, I could not reconcile. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's tough. All right. What's the biggest challenge you see for educators today? Not being caught up in the culture wars that, mm. that we can just be able to teach from our hearts and do the best that we can with our students without being caught up in these culture wars that either are judging us, threatening our career because of uh, things we're doing from a good heart to give the best to our children and that we're not permitted to do that. So that navigating that is going to be a huge, is, is an extremely difficult challenge. All right. We'll end on a positive note. What's the brightest spot you see in education right now? Oh, wow. These are such difficult times. Let me think. Um, I think that in spite of all of the, what seems to be negativity right now, we are really having conversations about what is the best type of education and curriculum to give our mm. children. Yeah. Like we're, the fact that we're arguing about that and those arguments are making it in the news. Yep. That's, I think that's a good thing because okay. it shows that we care. It shows that the world, the United States is caring and teachers are caring and school leaders are caring. And, um, and we're, we're all, and I'm going to, I'm going to choose to believe the best about everyone. We're all really trying to grapple with what is the best way mm. to reach all children, no matter the shade of their skin or their background, so that they get the best type of education. And we're having these challenging conversations right now. That's great. Great way to wrap that up. Anika, thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me, John. I really appreciate you having me. I hope you enjoyed listening to Anika. She's got amazing stories. She's a great storyteller. As you noticed, I barely had to ask any questions. She has a wealth of experience and knowledge. And I love the way she's thinking about using curriculum and that her hope is for this deep, meaningful curriculum to truly engage students in ways that don't ignore tests, but make learning about so much more than tests. I someday need to get to her school to see her students in action, but I'm so grateful for educators like this. I just hope that you have a great week in the profession that makes all of this possible. Thanks for listening. This podcast is brought to you by Baylor Center for School Leadership. Join us for our Just Schools Academy this June, where we will use Dr. Eckert's book, Just Teaching, to do better work together.